Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, when it talks about the Grecians and the Hebrews here, these are all Jewish people. But there were Grecian Jews who had adopted the Greek language and the Greek culture, and there were Hebrew Jews who had, had uh, you know, remained with the Hebrew language and, and the Hebrew culture. And there were often disputes among them. The, the Hebrew Jews tended to look down often upon the Grecian Jews because they were compromisers. They were, you know, they were, uh, uh, instead of Instead of remaining separate, uh, they were assimilating into that Greek culture and the Greek world. And you see here that there, there appear to be divisions along those same lines, even among the believers here in this Jerusalem church. And so the Grecians start to complain that in the daily ministration, remember, they're still coming and, and bringing, many people are selling everything that they have and bringing that that money to the apostles, and then it's being distributed out as people have need. But the Grecians come and they say, look, we have these widows here that are Grecians that are being overlooked in that daily ministration. They're not being cared for the way that they ought. Um, you know, they're, they're claiming there that the Hebrews are getting special treatment and that the Grecians are being overlooked. And, and so they come and they, uh, they, uh, it says there, there was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. They start to say it's, it's not fair. Uh, these things are supposed to be distributed as everyone has need, but the Hebrews are getting some things that, that the Grecians are not. And so in verse 2 it says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what the apostles do here is, remember, this church of Jerusalem has, has grown. I mean, this is a church of thousands of people at this point. Uh, again, you have you know those various passages we've looked at. It mentions three thousand on the day of Pentecost. It mentions five thousand later on, and and then several times beyond that, it's mentioned that the number of uh, of the believers was multi- multiplied. And so there are are thousands of people here in this church at Jerusalem, and the disciples. You know, you've got you've got. Twelve of them here at this point, or apostles, really, as, as they would properly be called here at this point, you've got, you've got twelve of them that are, you know, over, overseeing all of this business. Now, realize when, often when it gives those numbers of, of thousands, a lot of times that's just counting the men, not the women and children, the widows that would be mentioned here, okay? And so this is a, this is a very, a very large group of people that they are overseeing. 
And you can imagine how this, this daily ministration, the way that they're, they're doing this with everybody just selling everything they have and then distributing to each as they have need, that means this daily administration is a large task. And it appears that up to this point, the apostles had just been overseeing all of that themselves. And what they see a need for here in, in uh, chapter 6 is a, a kind of a division of labor. They're going to appoint, or really they're going to have the people choose out some men to oversee this, this business of the daily ministration so that the apostles can give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, in this passage, it doesn't use terms that are used later in scripture, like elders and deacons, but essentially the division of power that they put in place here is, is later what you see described in those terms of those offices in the local church of elders and, and deacons, with the apostles here being like the elders, the, uh, the men that are going to be chosen out here uh, called deacons. And so often these men that are going to be chosen here in this chapter are referred to as the first deacons, Okay. Um, notice, notice here, uh, first of all, the, 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 uh, the apostles remember that Christ had given them a great deal of authority, right? That they were going to lead in his absence. And they have authority to make these kinds of decisions. They're not, they're not, uh, you know, in any way doing anything wrong here in, in delegating to other people to uh, do some of these things. Uh, but, but you notice that what they do is rather than them just pick out some people, what they say is, look at verse 3 again, he says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, he says, whom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so the apostles are going to appoint these these individuals, they're going to uh, basically commission them to do this kind of work that needs to be done in the Jerusalem church, but they leave it to the people to choose who they want to oversee this. And you see what the basic division of labor is going to be, that the apostles are going to give, it says in verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so that basic division of labor that's put in there, the, the apostles are going to be concerned with the, the spiritual leadership. And these men that are going to be chosen out, they're going to take care of the physical things that need to be done. The, the, namely, the daily ministration here of the food that's going to be given out to uh, the various people in that, in that Jerusalem church. And again, biblically, that's the basic division between elders and deacons, or bishops and deacons. And we'll look at some of those passages in a little bit. But uh, uh, verse 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now, an interesting thing here is uh, when, they, when they give the multitude, and this is the whole multitude, the Grecians and the Hebrews together, and they say, choose out these men to be over this business. The interesting thing is all of those names that are listed there in verse 5 are all Greek names. Okay, now, now uh, you know, oftentimes the, the Grecian Hebrews would have Greek names. And in fact, in fact, 
Paul himself assumes a Greek name later on. There you have an example of a man. Saul is a Hebrew name, right? And that would have been his given name. He, as he's out among the Gentiles, he assumes a Greek name, Paul or Paulos, which means little one. Um, he, he takes on that name. And so many of the, the Grecian Jews as well would take on these Greek names where often the Hebrew Jews would continue to go by their, by their Hebrew names. And so it's an, it's an interesting thing here. It's probably likely that there were more Grecian Jews among these believers at Jerusalem than there were Hebrew Jews, but you see how they, they felt they were uh, being overlooked. So when it comes time to choose who these men are going to be that, that, uh, are going to manage this daily ministration, they choose Greek men, they choose Grecian men uh, to, uh, to be about that work. Now, they're still probably all Jews, except for, uh, it mentions Nicholas, that he was a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, a proselyte, meaning he's not a Jew by birth, he is somebody who probably had, had become a proselyte of, of the Jewish religion, and then became a believer on Christ. But uh, these are the men here that they choose to, to, uh, be, to, to take care of these physical things that need to be done there in that church at Jerusalem. And, and you see that this decision was a wise thing. You see what the result is. In verse 7, it says, "...and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith." And so what, what you see here in these, uh, these early chapters is there, it's not that everything's perfect there in Jerusalem. There's problems that come up. But you see, as, as the apostles deal with those things in a, a biblical and a godly and a wise way, always the result is that the word of God increases and the, n- the number of disciples multiplied, right? So, so you saw that after the, uh, the, the thing with Ananias and Sapphira, and you see it here. Uh, there's this dispute, but they deal with the dispute, and the result is that the word of God increases again. Um, the again this this uh, this system that they set up here in Acts chapter six really becomes the model for the local church from there going forward. Um, these uh, go go over to um, go to First Timothy. We'll look at some of the things here in Paul's epistles. Now, in in First Timothy chapter three. You have the Apostle Paul, this is considered one of the pastoral epistles, and he's writing to Timothy as a leader in the local church, and he's writing to him about, about the functioning of the local church. And there in, in these passages, we'll look at uh, the one here in Timothy, and we'll look at Titus as well, but uh, he, what he really lays out are two offices in the local church, okay? And these are not, these are not, don't think of these as clerical offices. He's not setting up some clerical class that is, is, uh, you know, in some ways spiritually superior to the, to the people or anything like that. But he's laying out these two offices of leadership in the local church and, and, um, he gives the requirements of those offices. Now, in Acts chapter 6, as it was talking about those first deacons, it talked about them being full of the Holy Ghost, full of, of wisdom, 
right? Here you have a, a more detailed list of the qualifications for those offices in the local church. And you see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, always when it talks about the name of the office in Scripture, the term that is used is bishop. It's not, it's not pastor. Uh, in, fact, in fact, the word pastor uh, is, is hardly used in the New Testament. The word pastor is more an Old Testament term than a New Testament term. It is used in a, a few verses in the New Testament. But, but the term that's more often used for the name of the office is bishop. Understand that in any of these things, Paul's not, Paul's not giving this as some kind of a religious title anyway. Um, you know, we a lot of times tend to focus on what, what somebody's title is. The issue here is not about what the man's title is. In fact, the word that's used, bishop, because that's not a word that, you know, that we would just use in a, in a normal way. We think of it primarily as a title. Um, but bishop there means overseer. Okay. Now, within Roman Catholicism, the bishops there are, are generally overseers of some large area. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about somebody being an overseer in the local church. Okay. And, and he uses the term bishop. In other places, a, a term that's used is the term elder. And an elder, again, is, is not a, is not so much a title as it is describing what the people are. They're to be, to be the, you know, the spiritual elders of that church. Here he uses that term bishop, that term overseer. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek term is the word episkopos, okay, which literally means overseer. Uh, you see the word skopos in there, scope. Um, that, that means to see. And it's an overseer. And he says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Bishop is the name of the office. It's not, it's not a title, so somebody can say, I'm Bishop so-and-so. In fact, you know, the interesting thing in, in the Bible, um, for instance, sometimes we refer to the Apostle Paul, right? And we use that term apostle as a title. You know, actually, the Bible doesn't use that term. Uh, Paul doesn't refer to himself as the Apostle Paul. He refers to himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right? The, the word is describing what he is and what he does. He's an apostle, a sent one, not a title to say, I've achieved this title of, of apostle. Right? So people get wrapped up in the title and then they get, you know, then they get in arguments about what the name of the title ought to be. Uh, again, the proper name of the office, biblically, here is bishop. Uh, but, but even that isn't given as a title so somebody can say, I'm bishop so-and-so. Uh, he says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And then he gives the requirements. He says, a bishop then must be blameless. And this is another one of these terms in Scripture that people often misunderstand. Blameless in the Bible does not mean sinless. If it did, nobody would ever meet the requirement. Right? It doesn't mean sinless. What, what it means is literally what it says, blameless. Blame is, you know, when somebody else is going to come and make, make accusation against somebody. You wouldn't put somebody in a position of, of bishop if, you know, there's all of these, all these accusations out there about them. Uh, the idea is that, that the person there, again, is not sinless, but is somebody who, who 
you know, is, is known to be upright. The, the term is used, uh, the Apostle Paul used it of himself when he said that touching the righteousness which was of the law, he said he was blameless. Well, what, what do you mean about that? We know that everybody has broken the law. What he meant in that case was he meant that when he had broken the law, he came, you know, did what the law said, brought the proper sacrifices, that there was nobody who could come and accuse the Apostle Paul of, of saying he was a, a lawbreaker in the sense that he hadn't, you know, he hadn't, uh, again, brought those sacrifices and, and things. That's what he's talking about. Now, obviously, it would mean something different here within the church, the body of Christ, but it has that same idea. It's, it's not somebody who you can lay a lot of things to their, to their blame. Um, and that term, by the way, blameless, is used, again, of, of various people in the Bible. It never means sinless, right? But it has the idea of somebody being, being upright, that when there are things that they've done wrong, that they go and, as much as possible, make those things right, okay? They're not, they're not rebellious in the sense that when, when, you know, when their sin is known, they just try and, try and brush it aside or whatever. They deal with those problems, Okay, and so it describes here that a bishop must be blameless. Uh, it says he must be the husband of one wife. Okay, so not somebody that has many wives. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of debate about, with regard to this requirement, uh, how divorce plays into that. But um, the, the, uh, the term that's used there means that he's, uh, in fact, the, the, the Greek term would literally mean a one-woman man. Okay, and I don't think the the term is there to say that if somebody, you know, was divorced 20 years ago, that they are automatically disqualified from ever holding that position. All right. Um, It's, you know, what's more important is what does somebody, what does somebody hold to right now? Okay, and it says he must be the husband of one wife. Uh, Certainly it would disqualify anybody who had multiple wives. It says he has to be vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Uh, that, by the way, that term apt to teach, when you compare the requirements for a bishop with the requirements that are going to be given a few verses down for a deacon, most of them are, are pretty much the same, except that for the, for the bishop, the additional requirement is that they be apt to teach, which tells you, again, something about what, what those roles are of bishop or, or elder and deacon. And, you know, many of the, the personal character requirements are the same, but the bishop or the elder is going to be involved in teaching, just like the apostles said that they were going to be given to the, the uh, word of God and prayer, that, that they weren't going to leave the word of God to, to serve tables. Uh, here, the bishop has that additional requirement of being apt to teach, because that's the main requirement of being a bishop or an elder. Um, so it says they're to be apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Verse 4 says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Uh, in, in many ways, being a bishop in the local church is like being a father in the home. All right, it's a, it's a position of 
authority, but it's a position of responsibility. And so they say here, look, look at a man, look at a man in his home and how he deals with his family and how he deals with his, his uh, wife and his children. And that's going to give you a good indicator of how that person is going to serve in the church. And this position is bishop. Um, if a if a man is neglectful of his family, he's probably going to be neglectful of things in the church. If a, a man is, um, you know, very, very overbearing and abusive toward his family, that's probably how he's going to be toward the church. Uh, you know, so that's the thing it gives as, a, as an important qualification there. Verse 6 says that a bishop should not be a novice, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And and so, you know, there's a, a warning there, both with bishops and deacons. There's a warning about putting people into those positions too soon. And, and you know, on the one hand, it's sometimes when somebody first gets saved, that's often when they have uh, the greatest desire to, to uh, be involved in ministry. And that's something that, you know, should be, should be encouraged. But you also got to avoid taking and, and putting people into those positions too quickly. And uh, so, you know, there have been many times where somebody's been, been put in that position very, you know, very quickly, but they've been a novice. And over time, they wind up kind of, kind of because, because of, you know, they go through the same kinds of struggles that, that uh, new believers go through. And in some cases, it can actually... Um, cast the, the word of God in a bad light, you know, because of those things. So he says here that it shouldn't be somebody who's a novice, uh, you know, no matter how much enthusiasm they have or, or zeal they have. He says, don't put somebody in that position that's a novice. Uh, he warns that they can become lifted up with pride. Somebody, oftentimes somebody can be put in a position, even somebody who might appear to be very humble, but they can be put in a position of authority and it goes to their head. Here it warns that, warns about somebody who's a bishop that it needs to be somebody who, you know, has demonstrated a, a track record of, of faithfulness. And, and so it says that, again, that he um, shouldn't be a novice. Verse 7 says, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so this is somebody who needs to be generally known. When it talks about those that are without, that's a, a term that's usually used of unbelievers. It needs to be somebody that has a, a generally good reputation, even just with the world without the church. You might know people who... You know, they'll they'll talk about somebody that they know is a Christian, and they just hate that part of who they are. Yet they have to admit the guy's honest. He's you know a hard worker, good good in his business dealings, uh, that kind of thing. And that's what it's describing here: that their general character, that even the unbelievers can see the uh, the that that faithfulness in their general character, no matter what they think of the fact that they're a Christian or or you know what they believe about the Word of God, and. So it says that they would have this good report even of those that are without. And, and again, all of these requirements there, it says, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And, and so there it talks about the elders. Now, again, in that church at Jerusalem, it was the apostles that were serving in that capacity. And these are, are things that you would find to be true of those men. All right, so, so after dealing with the office of a bishop, then we have the requirements for the office of a deacon. Verse 8 says, Likewise must the deacons be grave. 
not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Now, you can imagine if, for instance, that church there at Jerusalem, if they had chosen some of them, those men to be involved in that daily ministration, and yet they were greedy of filthy lucre, there would be a lot of opportunity there for them to, you know, just keep a little bit for themselves, uh, treat their own family and friends a little bit better, you know, those sorts of things. But you see there that it's, it's, uh, they're supposed to pick somebody that's not greedy of filthy lucre. Verse 9 says that they're to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, certainly with the bishops, you know, you would understand that they're, they're going to be involved in teaching. They need to be sound in doctrine. Uh, here with the deacons, it's not as if the deacons, just because they're not going to be dealing with uh, the teaching and, and those things directly, it's not as if there's, so, again, some lower standard for them as far as their understanding of the Word of God. A man that's going to be a deacon is going to be called on to make decisions about the local church and... Those things need to be done in accordance with God's word. And so the deacons need to be, it says they need to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Um, Now, it's not going to say that they have to be apt to teach those things. They don't necessarily have to have the ability to convey the mystery of the faith to others effectively, but they do have to have a grasp of sound doctrine themselves. Right? Holding that mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And it says of, of the deacons, verse 10, and let these also first be proved. And the word proved there means tested. And so again, there's this warning, as there was with the bishops, about, about um, putting somebody into the position without first having observed their, their demeanor, their behavior, so you have an idea of how they're going to perform in that position. It says, let them first be proved, let them be tested. Uh, you know, don't, don't just put somebody in the position uh, without first seeing how they're going to perform in that position. And so watch their, watch their demeanor. Sometimes what happens is people are put into a position hoping that holding that office will will cause them to live up to the requirements. That's not why it gives these things. It's the other way around. You look for somebody who, without holding the office, is meeting the requirements, and then, and then you put them into the office. And uh, so it says, Let them first be proved in verse 10. Let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so you see those, those requirements that the Apostle Paul gives there for those offices. And so you have that, again, that order established back here in our, in our original text in Acts chapter 6. It doesn't use the terms of the offices here, but what they establish here with this, this uh, uh, division of labor is really the best term for it, between the apostles and, and these men that are chosen, um, those offices that would later be called elder or bishop and deacon, um, what it allows is it allows for those apostles to 
be about the business of God's word without having to worry about, you know, what's going on with all these other things. Uh, there were all kinds of, of resources here, in a lot of ways, more even than what most local churches would have to deal with today. Um, there's there's uh, all those things that have to be handled, that have to be overseen, that have to be administered. They take some faithful men and put them in that position to, to oversee those things so that the apostles can give themselves to the ministry of the word so that they're not spending all of their time dealing with with all of those matters, and they can deal with the preaching of the word of God, they can give themselves to prayer. And again, you you see the result of that, of this wise decision here on their part in Acts chapter 6, where verse 7 says that the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and it says a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. When you read these things about, about church government and, and those offices, um, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't spelled out as far as exactly how the, how the people ought to be chosen in those positions, you know, all, all of those kinds of details. Uh, there's a lot of things that aren't spelled out directly because I think there's, a lib- there's liberty in a lot of those areas and, and different churches might choose to do certain things in different ways. But the things that are spelled out are the, the qualifications of the men in those positions. And those are important things to, to look at. They're important to consider when you're, when you're selecting people for those positions. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www dot friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.